Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 84 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and uh, I just came back a week ago from Minneapolis. I got to speak at the Resistance Exercise Conference, and my friend Mike T. Nelson came and hung out with me uh, for the whole weekend. We got to have a lot of uh, meals together and just chill and watch people like Brad Schoenfeld and Stu Phillips present. So it was great to get to hang out. Uh, it's great to get you back on here. I'll let you Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> that was... Uh... Yeah, it was super fun. I'm glad you made it down for the conference. Enjoyed all the talk. Your talk on social media was good. And yeah, maybe next week I'll actually have more stuff on Instagram. Like actually for real this time. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to touch on that because there's there's something later on. My cat Ozzy is knocking over my cue cards with his tail. That I have all of <laughs> it. And anybody who's not like super familiar with you, you've actually been on the podcast before under the old format with uh, my former co-host Dean Guido, my good friend, your good friend. I know I brought him down to Kansas City in 2018 where you met him and uh, he had a great time and I think it changed the tra trajectory of his career. So you are, well, first of all, you're a PhD in exercise physiology. You're an adjunct professor and you're a longtime coach, mentor, uh, speaker, presenter at these type of events. You've done a lot of stuff, longtime T-Nation writer. That's where I first you know, came across your work. And then I met you in 2017 at the, at that same event. So uh, like I said, it's great to have you back on. Yeah. Thank you so much for the, the great intro. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get talking about some stuff. Um, I, I love plugging into kind of the evolution of different successful people's careers. And in particular, you know, you're obviously in a place now where you're very, you're very influential. You mentor a lot of coaches you know, a lot of people know your name. You have a massive email list. We'll, we'll go out of that later. But what are some of the things that you focused on or did early in your career that set you up to be where you are right now? What was important? I think the, the probably the two things that helped me out the most was knowledge and then the application of it, which I know that like, well, like, oh boy, that's earth shattering. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> But I remember being on like an early <laughs> forum, <laughs> Mike Boyles, and this is back, Christ, almost two decades ago now, right when it first started. And I was like so excited because on one hand, there was like all these coaches I looked up to and you could interact with them. And this is when forums were big and, you know, T Nation had a big forum then. And I was like so amazed. I'm like, there's all this information and they were super nice and super helpful. And then what I thought was weird is when you would question it, like stuff that could be solved by even just an N of two experiment. Some people were completely unwilling to do anything. So a buddy of mine who was a strength coach at the time, Aaron, we had this debate going back and forth about sprinting. What is the fastest way? Should you do what was called a paradoxical false step backwards where you bring one leg back behind you is almost like kind of an anchor. And then you would go forward. The other technique was, well, you just kind of fall forward, let gravity take you, stop it with your first leg, and then go forward. There's a couple of studies that showed this backward step, or what's called a plyo step, was faster. But all these strength coaches are like, no, no, we never coached anyone like that. That's just weird. And so Aaron and I started wondering, we're like, wait a minute, how come all the high-level athletes we're pulling up, they're all doing a plyo step? Like, we couldn't find an exception to the rule. And so Aaron went and took a bunch of athletes each day and posted his results on there. It's like, yeah, I took these two athletes. I had him do a false start and I had him do the plyo step. And this guy was that much faster. And he just kept posting them day after day. 
And it was like, you kicked a hornet's nest. Like these people were getting pissed and he's, and I, and I'm watching this, you know, and I was good friends with him and I'm like going, these people have facilities. Like I've seen pictures of their facility. It's amazing. They've got, you know, hundreds of feet of turf. Like they have athletes in there all the time. They could easily replicate this. But what they did was they just got mad and said, no, no, this is dumb. And eventually he, <laughs> he kicked him off the forum. <laughs> and I was like, isn't this strength and conditioning? Like, shouldn't we be taking knowledge and like trying to apply it? And then you go to like the hardcore research end of the world. When I was doing my PhD at the University of Minnesota, people would come in like new students who were teaching undergrads and they'd be, they'd ask some question of like, you know, what's the best way to increase strength or, you know, something like relatively basic. Can you ask a few more follow-up questions? It was mind boggling to me that the three other people in the lab, well, two at that time, doing a PhD in exercise physiology, we're teaching some courses in exercise physiology, super knowledgeable mechanisms, very knowledgeable, but had no idea what to do with a person because they, they didn't work as a trainer. They, they were going to do cancer research or look at, you know, cachexia muscle wasting or, or whatever. So it wasn't in their wheelhouse per se, but I was again, boggling to my mind of like, but don't you wonder about this? Like, don't you go to the gym and kind of train yourself? They're like, yeah, I never really thought of it. I'm like, you're doing a PhD in the, the field for crying out loud. And so then I started getting curious. I started like 400 level students who were going to graduate in my exercise physics class. I said, okay, how many of you people in here even exercise routinely? Like only half of them raised their hands. And I'm like, you're graduating with the four-year degree in exercise physiology. Like, what is your point? They're like, oh, I'm going to go to nursing or I'm going to go to physical therapy or go on to some other school and cool. That's great. Awesome. More power to you. But yeah, anyway, so I guess the thing early on was something I thought was like so simple, right? You take knowledge, you apply said knowledge, you figure out if the shit works or not. <laughs> but like something that simple was just lost. And even sometimes now I think continues to get lost in the whole process. That's a brilliant story to explain <laughs> right on its surface that like, duh, that's not, but again, right. How much, how much do we know experienced coaches? We know, and we know that, well, shit, even other coaches who know these things and don't apply them to their own lives. But we look at the general population and we're thinking like, why don't you guys know this? Why isn't this automatic? But we got to actually put ourselves in their shoes and all the stuff that they're dealing with. So it's, it's not actually automatic for most of the people that we're dealing with in the general population, but the challenge oh, is totally. how do we take all that knowledge? And instead of going, Oh, you're, you can't do this. You're doing it wrong and get frustrated. Cause I literally know trainers who get on with that crap and you find a way to communicate it, to actually bridge the gap and to nudge someone along. Maybe they'll never reach your level of proficiency as a, you know, a coach who also is high level practicing uh, athlete of, of whatever form or just like work out for yourself, but how can you get that person to make improvements? So that way they're seeing results and they're feeling good. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I totally agree with general population. Like I, I don't fault them at all. I mean, Christ, I pay an attorney and a CPA, a lot of money and I just do what they say. Right. I'm not an expert in that area. So I don't expect any general population or even some people I work with to know that, but it was mind boggling to me that professionals at the highest level were st they still had this sort of impasse on it i guess <laughs> well i mean, not just pissed everybody off so 
Well, it, it actually dances around. And I mean, like, this is such a low hanging fruit. And every time I see a coach post this, I'm just kind of like, I groan, but it, and there's a nuanced discussion. It's like, do fitness professionals actually need to be in shape? And when I say this, I always qualify it as in shape can be a metaphor for the specific type of performance or aesthetic that you're coaching. And, you know, have right. fun. With that. I mean, you dance around that if you want to. Like, what are your thoughts on that? So I would say the general perception is still this kind of handover from bodybuilding, right? So people think that, oh, if you're a fitness professional, then you, their first thing is like, you, well, you should look like a bodybuilder, right? That's their like interpretation of fitness. Um, so I think there's still some stereotype of that. And if it's what you want to do, cool, man, go crazy. I don't care. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've tried to look at people, not necessarily where they're at now, but where did they start? I'm way more interested in like, what do you do on a weekly basis? Right. Because kind of the more you learn about the field, like there's certain structures that people have that will be lending more to one area or not. Like if you've got a very big bone structure, like odds are you can probably have a greater capacity to lift heavier loads just in general, right? So there's some, some things where you're going to have some advantages and you're going to have some disadvantages. So I'm more interested in what do they do on a daily basis? And then are they making progress at whatever rate towards the goal that they wanted to make progress at, right? And I think that's going back to just the general bodybuilding. Like a lot of people on the outside think that, well, if you're not jacked and lean all year round, then what are you doing, you idiot, right? But people who have been, let's say, we'll take being lean, like significantly lean. I've had some people where they could stay lean year round pretty easily. I've had other clients where, man, for them to stay lean, it was hard. And even doing a lot of things very intelligently. It's just at some point, for whatever reason, their body just started to revolt at them at that point. And I think as you get older, it's always a trade-off then. Like for me, like, could I be significantly leaner if I wanted to be? Yeah. Do I care about that right now? No, I don't. <laughs> if I'm honest, if I was honest about it, I would be leaner than what I'm at. But I know the trade-offs that go into that. I know how much time it's going to be. I know what it's going to take away from other projects. So I'm not, you know, obese or super fat, but you have to find that medium and put it into context with, okay, what are your overall goals with your life and what do you want to do? And does that match up versus are you just trying to live up to this weird stereotype that you're, you're just miserable and hate your life? You know, that's not really worth it either. There's a, a little nuance that I think is, is worth touching on. I mean, explicitly, we know that what someone looks like is not a reflection of their skill, their knowledge, or their experience. Like flat Correct. out, that is true. I still tend to try to say this in the nicest way possible. If you've got young or newer fitness professionals coming up through the industry, and if that professional is struggling with how busy they are, and if they're not, quote, visibly in shape, and again, in shape being that metaphor for whatever you're, you're doing, then one of the best uses of your time and effort is probably going to be making progress on that. Now, if you've got someone who's had a fairly dramatic transformation, but is still on a journey, that's actually wonderful. That gives you a lot of credibility and relatability, especially if you're in that space. 
but to kind of piss into the wind and say, well, this is bullshit. This is not fair. I know what I'm doing. And yet you're turning around and asking people to make changes in their lifestyle and sacrifices because, you know, they got, they're busy, like life is busy and crazy. But if you're not able to demonstrate that same thing, then it can compromise your credibility. In the end of the day, it's yes, what we know matters a lot, but it's also still how the the first perception that the person in front of you who wants to feel better and change your life, that stuff also matters. So I always try to, in the most positive and constructive way possible, encourage people who are frustrated to say, listen, this is a really good place to put some effort into. Sure, we don't know someone's story and circumstance and we can't judge, that's never helpful. But at the end of the day, if someone's passionate and wants to stay in the industry and be successful, then you know, being able to demonstrate, especially if you're early end of your career, you're building up your reputation. I mean, I'll, I'll use an example. Like we, we hung out with uh, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld this weekend, right? The guy is literally the preeminent researcher on muscular hypertrophy. No one is going to mistake Brad for a Mr. Olympia competitor, right? But he has competed in the past. He's been a, a jack guy, you know, especially as a natural competitor, you know, and now he still works out regularly, but again, no one's going to, you know, mistake him for, you know, a very high level non-tested bodybuilder. But that being said, he's got such a legacy of credibility in the industry that outside of, you know, the occasional bro idiot who's just going to be like, oh, do you even lift? Uh, who just wants to believe in the old ways. Everybody else respects his knowledge and his authority in that space. Right. But not everybody. Yeah, no. And I, 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 I agree with all that. You know, like when I first started, I mean, crap, my first two years of college, I was six foot three and weighed 155 pounds. You know, this is after puberty. This is after I started lifting. This is after I supposedly hit my growth spurt and all this other stuff that never really seemed to happen other than I got tall. Right. You know, and thinking back, Christ, it took me two and a half years. I remember reading some of John Berardi's early articles and I had a watch. I bought a Target and I set an alarm on there for two and a half hours and I had to eat something every two and a half hours, preferably some protein. And it, I did that religiously for two and a half years to gain 20 pounds, right? You know, but it worked, right? I made, made progress. So we're moving in the right direction. I did something similar. Like when I first got really serious about working out, I was 24 years old, 170 pounds at six foot two. Right? And I walk around now at about 255 for, for the last several years. And I read the bodybuilding magazines and bought into all this stuff, but for guys like us who were naturally a little bit on the leaner side, yeah, eat meal frequency will matter. I mean, we know the science, you know, there's nothing, there's no benefit to your metabolic rate. If you're eating the same amount of food equated for protein and fiber, if you have it across three meals or six, right. doesn't matter, but we know that in order to get that kind of volume of food to put on muscle mass, you probably need to eat more frequently to be able to actually get that food in. I still have yeah. a protein shake right after a workout. I know the anabolic window is bullshit. I know that. Like there's, but it's another opportunity for feeding. And it's very easy and it's a good habit that is a like a constant trigger. End of the workout. Okay, there's a trigger for the habit. I have the protein shake, it's got creatine in it. And it's a system that has worked very well for me for years. And I don't do it because, well, shit, if I wait until I get home and I sit down and have a meal, I've blown all my gains. Like, no. Yeah. No, uh, I agree with that. I mean, I did the same thing Monday, right? People are like, what? I had a shake on the way to the gym. I trained for an hour and a half. And then I knew I was going to do a sauna and I had to walk back from the gym. Normally I train here at my place, but Mondays I get out of the house, go somewhere else. 
So I had a shake with some carbohydrates and protein after because exactly your reason. I knew that best case scenario, it's going to be another hour and a half before I would get any food. And then that's going to push everything, you know, later. And so I'm trying to move everything up. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Even though the research would say, if you can account for these other factors, there isn't really any difference. Caveat being, I know if I wait, I'm probably not going to have like the best meal when I get home. I'm going to be more tired. And then now I'm probably not going to want to eat again another two hours after that. Cause I might want to go to bed and then I'm going to wake up hungry and murder cookies in the middle of the night or whatever, you know, this like leads to all these other things. <laughs> Standing in front of the fridge at 2 AM eating shredded cheese. There's a meme about this. I saw recently. I said it to him <laughs> like I've done this. Right. Uh, there, there is also one thing I think is fair to say about within the powerlifting realm. I know this is an argument I think most of the credible powerlifting coaches have demonstrated at least at some point in their career or ongoing that they're pretty strong human beings. And I, mm -hmm. I think that world, I think they're wired that way. And it's, it's again, it's not about what, you know, it's about how the population who might train with you perceives you. And I'm thinking that most powerlifters are probably going to look at you and go, they want to see that you're pretty strong or at least have a demonstrated track record. I mean, like someone like Louis Simmons. I mean, Louis is a strong human being all the way through, but I'm sure, pretty sure Louis's legacy later in his career, someone's like, yeah, you know, I, I, Louis still got it. I'll, I'll train with him. He knows his shit. Yeah, and Louis at that point later in his career could also point to all the athletes that he worked with too. I think that's a part we forget too. When you're, when you're starting out, you don't have anyone you've worked with, right? You have no social proof. You have no almost referrals. So you have less to go on if you're, you know, 15 years into it, then, you know, like look at NFL, you know, coaches, right? Bill Belichick probably still lifts, but I don't know if he's in the best shape ever compared to most football players. But a lot of people are probably not going to argue with him as a coach, right? But he's got decades upon decades of results that he can point to at that point. If he walked in day one, it's a little bit of a different story at that point. Absolutely. All right. So obviously we talked a little bit about the early stuff that mattered. Um, what do you currently prioritize with your time, the, the things you put your time into uh, to keep your career, your work fresh, exciting, sustainable? Yeah. So this is something I spent a lot of time probably thinking more about the last couple of years. Um, just because when you, and John Brody's talked a lot about this too, like when you start out, like just say yes to everything, right? I said yes to like, you want me to write an article? Sure, who are you? I have no idea who you are. I'll write you an article, right? And podcasting wasn't really a thing then, but later podcasting became a thing. You want to be a guest on a podcast? Sure. Like if you started your podcast yet? No, I don't even know who you are. I'll be on your show, right? <laughs> so you, you're you just trying to do everything possible everywhere. And then at some point that's going to reach kind of a crescendo where you're going to start running out of time. And at that point then, and you have to be a little bit more selective, right? Because you're like, oh man, you know, if I say, you know, yes to Joe Bob's podcast, who hasn't even started one, I don't even know if that thing's going to see the light of day, right? Which has happened. So at some point, you, you kind of have to be a little bit more selective at that point. And then it gets a little harder because it's almost like the sort of death by opportunity, like the thing that you really wanted when you start. Now you almost have a little bit too much of. So by definition, you have to prioritize and I'm always fascinated about what do you do to prioritize then? 
So a couple of years ago, one of the questions I had is, you know, where, where I'm at now, am I going in the right direction? Right. And the answer I got was, yeah, I think I'm, I'm kind of going in the right direction. So a year later, then I'm like, okay, how do I decide what to do then? Like what criteria do I hold it up against my values? Do I look at income? Do I look at exposure? And as woo -woo as this is, I was in Costa Rica, did an ayahuasca ceremony there. And that was the main question I had. And I thought, well, this is a perfect time. I'll see what happens. And within the first half hour, it's like, why don't you just do what you love? I was like, oh, shit, that's so simple. Why didn't I think of this? And you, you had thought of it, but I'm like, I never trusted myself enough to use that as the number one metric. And then, of course, it seems like whenever in life you, you pick a direction, you put your stake in the ground, you're like, this is the direction we're going you can guarantee that there'll be like a whole series of obstacles that just get like thrown at you right away. It's like the ultimate shit test. It's like, Oh, are you really sure this is what you're going to do? Um, cause at that point I had some clients who had five clients drop off literally within three and a half weeks, which that had never happened to me before. And it was all just weird coincidence, you know, basement floods, taxes. It was, didn't really have anything to do with the training or anything like that. It was some, you know, external circumstance. And so then I'm like, well, I could definitely open up more spots, right? That's definitely an option, but onboarding people doing everything else. I like it, but I knew it was going to take away from uh, projects I had already uh, committed to. So I'm helping Cal Dietz with the next version of triphasic training. So that's kind of the main project I'm working on a couple of their smaller projects. And so it was almost like the universe is like, Oh, and here's your tax bill. Oh, yeah, it's way higher than we thought. Good luck with that. It's like, oh, and you can, I could feel myself going back and going, but man, I could open up like 10 slots. I could probably fill them. You know, I have a newsletter list. I could do all these things. Um, but that's going to take away time from the thing that I really, really wanted to work on. So right now I'm kind of, you know, in the point where I'm still kind of riding it out. You know, I added one more client, which was great because I had one person drop off. So I'm like, that'll keep me at the same. And then, as you know, when you run your own business, a lot of projects, you don't get paid until the thing is out and sold if you're getting a percentage of what it is. So that's great. Once this product's out, it's selling, hopefully it's doing well, you're great. In the meantime, you've got this gap to fill of, okay, do I just keep kind of riding this out and kind of throw all my bets into this area? And I decided, yeah, I think that's what I want to do. I like the material in the book. I've known Cal for many years. And even if it didn't sell anything, which I hope it does well, I would still feel like, yes, that was the right decision because I think these methods and this type of thing should just be out in the world anyway. So trying to do, my friend Rick called it kind of like the, the trust fall of like, I think this is the right way to go. And then worst case scenario, here's my bottom floor where if I hit this point, then okay, I'm going to have to, you know, redecide what I'm doing. But until that point, it's kind of freaky, but I'm just going to kind of go that direction and <laughs> hope it works out. <laughs> and you're right. It is, it does echo with what uh, John Berardi has said a lot of, uh, you know, John is very picky about what podcasts he does, what speaking engagements he takes. And it's got to be something that's aligned with him. It's got to add something to his career goals, not take away from his time with family. And I'm noticing that there's been a bit of this shift as well, where I'm getting more and more inquiries of my time. There's more online coaching inquiries and my schedule just can't fit everything that I probably would like to do. 
So I have to be very mindful of, okay, this, I don't enjoy this. I don't enjoy. So I've started more consistently saying no to certain asks of my time. And uh, I'm also trying to say, okay, well, what phase of my career am I in now? And I'll be very transparent because I always am that one of those things is, is brand growth, right? Is, is enhancing the authority and credibility within the industry. So if I get a speaking engagement, I'm going to like, yeah, I'm going to say yes to that because I really want to make sure that works. There may come a time down the road where I have to start saying no to that. Uh, if someone asks me on a podcast, I almost always will try to make that sort of thing work. Right. And I try to put a reasonable amount of time into being engaged on social media without being a slave to it. I try to be really intentional. So those things, and then just, I got to make sure my clientele are in a really good place because I don't have any of these projects that are of the scale where there's going to be a major payoff. I'm trying to put myself in a position that maybe someday I could pivot in that direction. But for now, I just want to make sure that my coaching stuff is, is pretty topped up. So that way I can, you know, piss off for a week to Florida, to an event, if I want and go catch some tool concerts and, and not have to worry about making a mortgage payment. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I was talking to my buddy Travis about this the other day is that, I mean, I think the only reason to kind of run your own business, which a lot of trainers do is because you probably like freedom more than income, right? I mean, I worked in the biomed uh, company for quite a while. I worked there for 10 years in uh, cardiac stuff. I finished my PhD. I had a master's in mechanical engineering. I could have literally walked down the road and started at, you know, probably a hundred thousand a year, like pretty easily. And that's not just to brag. That's just for people who have a dual degree that was in two different disciplines that are terminal degrees in that field, the 10 years experience, that was just the going rate. But that came with the caveat of, I couldn't just work 20 hours a week and do half time. It would be full time, which would be 40 to 60 hours a week. You're going to start at two, maybe three weeks vacation four if you're very, very lucky, but you may not be able to take that because of project schedules, everything else. And I'm like, do I really want to do that? It's like my main thing that I want is more freedom and me to pick what I want to spend my time on. Right. So we usually go down to Sal Padre, do some kiteboarding in the spring and the fall. We work online so we can work down there at the same time. So I realized that it's worth the pain in the ass to do things on your own. I think if you really value the freedom to pick and choose what you want to do, because if you don't, then I don't think there's the headaches are probably <laughs> probably not worth it. <laughs> it may take several years. I mean, it's 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 still starting a business, right? It's like it's oh yeah, go front of business. You know, don't expect massive paychecks and you know all kinds of freedom in the first little bit. You're going to be working a lot more than probably what you would be quote full time with a salary based job. Oh yeah, it puts you in a position to be able to do that later, and that's kind of you know how mine has been materializing i'm also a workaholic so i'm kind of going all day late into the evening yours this call is sandwiched in between a whole bunch of other stuff i got a consult after you a couple more clients i got to do my online updates and i still got a presentation i'm working on for uh at for the local nsca actually i'll shout that out because uh anybody who especially is edmonton or alberta based i'm uh, giving a talk on uh, being a fitness writer at the nsca provincial clinic here in edmonton at svpt june 4th so message me on Instagram nice. and that that one's going to be sweet. And I'm actually going to do the same talk again at the Inland Empire Fitness Conference. And I think that's the weekend of like August 13th and 14th in Spokane at Tim Arts event. That one is a blast too. So anyway, quick little plug. Hopefully I'll see some people there. 
I mentioned your email list earlier, and you're, you're sort of the example I like to use about, you know, following isn't necessarily measured in visible followers on, say, Instagram or, God forbid, TikTok, uh, which I think is great for coaches to embrace. TikTok. But uh-huh. you probably have a, an email list many orders of magnitude larger than most people's social media followings. As you alluded to, you don't necessarily post a lot of like highly engaging, frequent stuff on Instagram um, to drive growth. Maybe you'll change that. So what are your thoughts? Like, I'm on your email list. So you email out almost every day and people Mm -hmm. are worried about sending out daily emails or putting up daily posts. And they think, oh my God, like I'll, I'll annoy people. They're going to, they're going to unfollow me. They're going to unsubscribe. So what would you say to kind of counteract that fear? And how has the process worked for you with that frequency? Yeah. If you send crap, people will definitely unsubscribe. Right? Uh, so I think that's the first question of, you know, make sure you have something that's worth saying at least you know my bias is more infotainment type area and then like you said in, in your talk it doesn't have to be perfectly unique at all um so that would be like step one and when i first started doing it i was lucky i had a newsletter list relatively early on and probably 2016 i hired a business coach and i paid him 2500 a month for business coaching which at the time I literally almost like pissed myself to sleep for the first four months. Like my whole goal after five months was just to break even because I realized that I'm like, oh, how many business classes have I taken? I've been in college full time for almost 18 friggin' years. Oh, I haven't taken a single business class. Do I know anything about accounting? No. Do I know anything about business? No. Maybe I should get professional help. Shocker, right? And so I had a newsletter list said was, well, you're only emailing them like twice a week. You should send daily content. And first I said, what are you crazy? Everyone's going to unsubscribe. They're going to hate me. And then he's like, no, no, I've done this with many companies before. And he had run like legit, you know, multi-million dollar businesses. And I thought about it and I'm like, okay, why am I paying this guy $2,500 a month? If I don't even test his advice or I don't even trust his advice enough to test it. So I said, okay, great. I will do this. You'll help me with it. I'll run for four weeks. And if I get like a massive unsubscriber of, you know, five to 10%, then I'm just going to shit can this and we'll call it a cool experiment. And what I found was like, almost no one really unsubscribed. Like the unsubscribe weights didn't go up any higher, but my conversions and everything else went up exponentially higher, much higher. And then I realized I was like, oh, it's just communication, right? So if I told my wife, I'm like, hey, guess what? We're only going to talk once a month. Like that's not going to go well, right? But if we can have good conversations more frequently, it's it's only going to be a benefit, right? And so even now with some of the people I have that I do a mentorship with, all the people that are great, like we've been helping them actually with their writing and everything else, but there's still a hesitancy to, to send it. Because if you're new, you're going to put yourself out in the world. And yes, some people are not going to like it. Some people are un, are going to unsubscribe. I actually do some newsletters just to see how many people I can get to unsubscribe, right? Like I'll go really hard in one direction just to kind of piss off some new people so that they just leave early and they're not offended later. Um, But the core people, they like that, right? Those are the emails that they resonate with the most that I get the most replies from are sometimes the ones that I also get the most unsubscribes, which I'm like, that's great. 
right? Because at least now people are sort of paying attention and that's kind of a good marker. Like the worst thing is where you never hear anything from anyone and they're, they're just bored, silly. And eventually they're just going to unsubscribe or never buy anything anyway. And let's put it this way too, because how different is it really from me putting up a daily social media post and caption? Yeah, it's not it that different. So, it's not at all. It's really just delivering some, it's delivering the same sort of thing within a slightly different format. And yes, your email subscribers in theory, it's a better way to get in front of them versus the way that algorithms work on social media. We know that it is you control and own your email list in a way social media can fuck around with you. So it is always valuable to get people over onto an email list. hundred percent true. You know, coaches, if you guys don't have your email list started, figure this shit out. Okay. Convert kit is great. MailChimp, whatever you want to use. Right. But fundamentally, I mean, if I was worried about, well, shit, if I post daily on Instagram and people are going to unfollow me, oh, I'm not going to post. That actually is counterintuitive. I deliberately post once a day, sometimes twice. Every time I post Larry, my 71-year-old my client who's strong as hell, no one ever goes, I'm sick of seeing Larry posts. They literally freak Damn out. Damn it, Larry again? <laughs> They're all like, please, we want to see more Larry. Or if I go like two weeks out sharing them, they kind of get antsy. They're like, where's Larry, right? So they, they get kind of annoyed. So I've kind of created a monster here now with them all. And what happens? Okay, Instagram's a weird thing. You get tons of unfollows anyway, but I think those are just like spam bots that come in and out. That's just part of it. But my social media, quite frankly, is one of the fastest growing social media accounts in our world, right? John Goodman has just been skyrocketing. And we've had some conversations about that. And he's he knows what he's doing with that. He's written like 10 books on marketing. I'll give him credit. Yeah, yeah. Outside of that, mine is blowing up. I, I just looked at it today. I've gained 12,000 followers in the last 30 days. Holy shit. Nice. That's insane, right? And so, I mean, those are more contact points. But if people get tired of the frequency or don't like my style and they unfollow, well, that's that's actually a good because it filters them out now. There are people who otherwise will be sitting there not engaging with my stuff, which actually affects your performance of the algorithm. It's no different with an email list. Your email list kind of has a credit score of sorts. If Yep aren't opening your emails it's has this score where it says okay this is probably spam or junk and it ends up in more junk folders which hurts you in the long run so you want to get rid of people who aren't engaging with your uh with their following on social media or with your email list yeah and i purposely go and clean people out every right now i'm doing it every four months right which the first time i did that i was like because it, it does kind of hit your ego. Like I sliced my email list probably by 60% the first time I did it several years ago. And that to me was like a big kick to the nuts. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? And then I realized I'm like, well, these people were not engaging anyway. You send them a follow-up email, you tell them exactly what's going to happen. If they still don't engage, th there's, there's no use, right? What well, I'm probably not going to reach them for whatever reason, right? So just get rid of them. And then your deliverability goes up. Everything else generally gets better too. So what key things in terms of media put you in a position where you are now, you know, well known to the point where you have this really strong email list. And even without really trying with Instagram, you've got like, you've got a good chunk of followers. What was the stuff that got you to the point where the industry, because I remember when I went to, you know, the, the Kansas city in 2017 and I'm like, Oh man, that's Mike T Nelson. Cool. Right. Like, <laughs> the fun T nation. And I'm, I'm thinking that T nation was probably one of the major catalysts for it. Yeah, so actually most of it was like a lot of blogs back in the day. 
So I still have my blogger account up. Like people can see like how horrible my writing was early on, but I just started doing stuff. Like I think the first post I ever put up was about like some cardiac dissection I did in the lab and how it's related to aerobic training or something. I don't know. Um, and then I found by doing that, this is like back many years ago when, you know, for a while I would get like thousand people a day and got a lot of people to subscribe to the newsletter. Um, pretty easy. Like I didn't do, I did a little bit of paid traffic, but not a ton. Um, and then everything kind of morphed a little bit more towards social media and that type of thing. Um, and then I was going to transfer when I redid my site for the fourth time. Now I was going to transfer all the old articles and I started reading them. And honestly, I, I hated them. So I literally should can probably 500 articles, which any SEO person out there is probably just like going to yell at me, but I didn't have the time. I didn't have the bandwidth to move them over. It was stuff that I wasn't necessarily doing right now. So even if I got the traffic, it wasn't specific to what I wanted to do right now. Mm -hmm. So I was just okay letting it go. Um, I left the original blogger account up just as more of a historical marker per se. Um, and if people want to go back and see how bad it was, they can still probably find it. Um, so that helped a lot. And then, you know, I mean, writing for T Nation and other or sites like that was helpful. Um, I had a bunch of, you know, articles in uh, men's health and other major magazines. And the magazines were good from like a credibility standpoint, but everything that I've tracked, like it didn't really move metrics all that much. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think once, if you're really into it, like once you write for one magazine, unless you're really into doing that thing, which if you are great, but if you're just using it as a tool, yeah, it's kind of mixed, right? If you did three articles or two articles or 10, you can still say I was, a, I had an article at men's health or whatever. Right. So I think once you've got that, you're pretty good. The online ones do tend to transfer better. Um, and then I took a lot of blogs and other ones where I did the article for free and I just got a link back to my website or I would put a newsletter offer in there. And those actually pulled from a number standpoint way better than anything else, right? Because they're already on the article. It was easy for them to click. This is also back when it was, you know, I confess a lot easier to get email uh, names on a list. It's much harder now. Um, but those things actually helped quite a bit, even though they were not super public and well-known. So I kind of differentiated between what are good things to do for brand recognition as a name, like writing for magazines, you know, T Nation, speaking, all these other things, 100% nuts on, that's good for that. But for what actually moves the needle day to day, getting people on a newsletter list and then seeing what conversions were to a sale, that to me actually was more direct marketing and that actually worked way better. Um, and I think people... Uh, kind of conflate brand and direct marketing as the same thing. And there's a time and a place for both, 100%. But what is your goal and what are you trying to do, right? So if I wanted to have a bigger brand, I would look to speak at, you know, probably bigger conferences, right, for other publications. It may not transfer to my business day to day, but it would elevate my brand. If I'm looking to escalate newsletter subscribes in or opt-ins, like now I'm going to start doing a lot more paid traffic. Right, because the whole market has even shifted more where organic reach is really down. All the platforms basically want income from advertising. So it is kind of a, a, a pay to play if you're trying to get a sale or an opt-in. Um, so I think just differentiating those in your head when you're starting out 
is super beneficial. And as long as you're clear on what you're doing, like both of them are, are beneficial. But I see too many people going for brand recognition, but they're living in their mom's basement and they make no money at all and want to do online training. It's like, you would be better doing direct marketing. It's not as sexy. People may not know you, but it's a faster way to try to at least pay your bills and then reevaluate what you want to do. And analogous to that would be my road, which is you know, the in-person trainer, local reputation, word about massive referral network for a yep. really long time. I've been training for 11 and a half years. I wrote on Facebook blog style, sure, which actually did really, really well for driving people who already were connected to me to my business. But my first article I published on my own website was 2018. I've been writing for T Nation for creeping up on three and a half years. Great. That one is big on brand. I'll circle back around to it. But what put me in a position to be able to aggressively work on brand and, and industry credibility was the fact that I had the stability of a thriving in-person coaching business anyway. Yep. They put me in a position where, all right, let's start putting some time and effort into social media, Instagram, because that's kind of the big platform right now, even though the, the organic growth potential of TikTok, t Instagram is still the hub where, you know, most of the really credible fitness industry are. And I started getting serious about that two and a half years ago. So that puts me at year nine of my career. And every day, every day, every day, every day, grew slowly, grew slowly, grew slowly. And over time, it's picked up to the point where now it's actually growing really aggressively. But you, if you try to start there with social media first, you're missing out on all this other sort of stuff. And so whatever like pays your bills that has a really solid foundation matters more. And you can use that to then build social media growth and brand on top of it. You can't just start with branding. And I treat like you know, any article that I have published on anything, great, that's awesome. But like you, it's like being able to say, I'm a writer for these things in my social media bio on my website. It, it grants that authority. And yep, some of them I've just written for once. That's all the opportunity I really wanted or needed or might get because some of them have shifted their content uh, styles. And, but being able to do that is huge. And I can focus on, you know, writing for some new stuff, which I really like because it's a new and exciting opportunity. And then I still feed stuff to T Nation. I still feed stuff to Generation Iron. You know, I'm, I'm ongoing with Muscle Fitness, which I'm enjoying. My editor there is great. So I really want to take care of him. And I got a couple of new places knocking on my door. I'm like, cool, I got to I got to find some time for this, but uh, and I can only give you so much. But uh, right now in this stage, it's a it's a yes decision. Yeah. And I think if I would add one thing to that would be, and I know you would agree with this is just learn to be a better writer. And the only way you're going to do that is by just sitting down and, and freaking writing, you know, cause people are like, you know, I have very nice people like yourself and other people they are like, Oh, I enjoyed your newsletter. That was so great. And some people are like, well, how did you get to that writing style? I'm like screwed up a lot of stuff for like 15 years of like writing daily. You know, like, I don't know if there's a shortcut to it. There's some books I know you've recommended and there's other ways to get better, but you're never going to get around the fact of just, just putting the reps in, right? It's like, you want to get stronger. You got to put the reps in. Yes. There's ways you can make that faster for sure. Education, applied knowledge, all these things help, but you, you know, you just got to start somewhere. <laughs> I definitely think there are some books that are worthwhile reading because if you read those books and then you practice your writing through the filter of what those books will tell you to do. Yes. Like nuking adverbs or 
understanding the difference between active and passive and anybody who's interested in writing, hopefully I'll grab onto this. Otherwise I apologize, but like active versus passive voice, just making sure that your writing is crisp, clear. It doesn't ramble with a lot of weak language. Anyway, if anybody has any specific questions on it, message me or literally try to come out to one of my presentations on this because I'm going to have some real fun with this. And I'm not going to get too much into the weeds and the technical stuff. I really think go read the books on the technical stuff, just the big picture stuff. And you said it, it you have to practice this stuff, right? You can't, uh, you can't hack the process too much without the practice. Mike, where yeah. do people find you online? Where can they join your newsletter, your website, your social media? Yeah, so the best place is uh, where everything goes through is just MikeTNelson.com. If you go there, there'll be a bunch of options where you can get on the newsletter for free. We give you some other cool stuff. Uh, Instagram is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. So D-R-M-I-K-T-N-E-L-S-O-N. I might have more stuff on there. Some stuff goes on Facebook a little bit. And then I also do have a podcast, which is just the Flex Diet Podcast, which is weekly. And then I'm also on Iron Radio Podcast, and that goes out weekly also. So those are probably be the, the main places. Once you're on the newsletter, uh, just drop me a note. Tell me you heard me here, and I'll send you a cool free gift too. Sweet. Awesome, guys. Go check out Mike, seriously. And like, just, again, plug into all the stuff that Mike talked about that put him in a position where he's comfortable, successful, and is able to do this stuff on his terms. You may not have Jordan Syatt or Lane Norton's like breadth of like fame, but you're doing things on your terms very comfortably and enjoying it. Mike, real pleasure to have you on. If anybody finds this episode through Mike's media and you're finding me for the first time, go back and listen to Mike's old episode with, uh, with me and Dean. You got to scroll back a little bit. And if you, and if you scroll through the, the history of guests, you're going to find a lot of people that you recognize, a lot of big names, successful people in the industry. You may enjoy those. Maybe you stick around and subscribe. I got to earn it, but I appreciate it. Mike, thank you so much. I appreciate having you on.